Welcome to the Hay Courts Dialogue Series podcast. The focus of this two-part episode are the various legal and political issues raised by the arrest warrants issued by the International Criminal Court on the 17th of March, 2023, for Vladimir Putin, President of the Russian Federation, and Maria Lvova-Belova, Commissioner for Children's Rights in the Office of the President of the Russian Federation. Both are alleged to be responsible for war crimes, specifically the unlawful deportation and transfer of children from occupied areas of Ukraine to the Russian Federation. In this podcast, I am joined by a panel of experts who will share their reflections on some of the legal and political issues that are raised and remain relevant in respect to these arrest warrants, as well as their perspectives on these issues. In this respect, it is important to mention that of course all comments and contributions made by the participants in this episode are made in the individual and personal capacity only, and hence ought not be understood as reflecting the positions of any of their respective organizations, or partners, or anyone else for that matter. Joining us on a panel, we have Dr. Julie Fraser, Assistant Professor with the Netherlands Institute of Human Rights and Montaigne Center at Utrecht University, Victoria Kerr, Associate Fellow at the TMC Asset Institute and Consultant on the MATRA Project, Strengthening Ukraine's Capacity to Investigate and Prosecute International Crimes, Dr. Serhi Masol, Humboldt Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the University of Cologne, and Dr. Owiso Owiso, international lawyer and independent consultant specializing in international criminal law and transitional justice. A final point to mention, this podcast was recorded on the 10th of May, 2023, and so naturally does not include any reflections on developments that have occurred since then. Nor is it exhaustive. Of course, there were many issues which we could and wish to have been able to focus on further. With that being said, we start off this first part of the episode with some background before considering some of the issues raised by these arrest warrants from an international law perspective, broadly speaking. Said he, why don't you start us off? The involvement of the International Criminal Court in the situation in Ukraine dates back to November 2013, namely the beginning of the mass protests in Kyiv and other Ukrainian cities, known as the Yevromaidan. These protests were sparked by the Ukrainian government's decision not to sign an association agreement with the European Union. In February 2014, Russia, which supported the anti-Maidan protests, invaded Ukraine firstly by occupying the Crimean Peninsula, which is in the south of Ukraine, and later waging the war in Donbass, which is in the east of Ukraine. As a response, Ukraine submitted two ad hoc declarations under Article 12, Paragraph 3 of the Rome Statute, accepting the ICC's jurisdiction over international crimes allegedly committed during the Yeromaidan and the ensuing Russo-Ukrainian war. In December 2020, the ICC Office of the Prosecutor concluded its preliminary examination of the situation, finding a reasonable basis to believe that certain international crimes had indeed been committed in Ukraine. In March 2022, the Office of the Prosecutor opened an investigation into the situation in Ukraine on the basis of the referrals from Lithuania and a group of other states' parties to the Rome Statute. In March 2023, pretrial chamber two of the ICC issued arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Bilova. The ICC considered that there are reasonable grounds to believe 
that each suspect bears responsibility for the war crimes of unlawful deportation of children and unlawful transfer of children from the occupied areas of Ukraine to Russia. A lot of political and legal issues were raised by commentators across the world, including in Ukraine, Russia, the Global South, and the West. And I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion of these vexed problems in our today's podcast. Thank you, Sadhi, for starting us off. Julie, what are some of the international legal issues being raised here? Thanks, Carl. I think that it raises many different issues in international law. Um, There's been much debate, both politically in terms of international relations and also amongst international lawyers and domestic lawyers, of course, also for Ukraine, who's also looking to prosecute crimes committed on their territory. Um, And I'm also looking forward to this discussion where hopefully we can get into some of the issues about the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and how that can be exercised over these crimes, noting, of course, that Russia is not a party to the Rome Statute. So jurisdiction is an issue. Also, immunity is a big issue. And particularly then head of state immunity has been widely debated in relation to uh, the International Criminal Court and particularly its arrest warrants for some heads of state or former heads of state across African countries. So then you also see questions about double standards. Of course, here we're looking at, you know, where are these alleged crimes being committed, who's being prosecuted, and then who's not being prosecuted. And I think it's a really interesting issue also for the Rome statute system, which doesn't include Russia as one of the P5, doesn't include the USA, also P5 country that's been very strongly opposed to the International Criminal Court in the past. Um, And the USA now seems to be supporting these arrest warrants, but obviously it sets up perhaps a troubling precedent for US officials to also be brought before the ICC at one point in time in the future. So I think there are lots of different issues that we can discuss, and it's probably more than one podcast. Yep, certainly a lot to discuss. So let us jump straight in to consider these two issues of jurisdiction and immunity then. What is at stake here? And why may these two issues be somewhat controversial in this context? For many people, it is important to understand why the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over the situation in Ukraine. Uh, Ironically, It was Vladimir Putin himself who authorized the Russian government to sign the Rome Statute in 2000, 23 years ago. However, in 2016, following his instructions, the government of Russia informed the world community that Russia no longer intended to become a state party to this international treaty. So, In a nutshell, Russia is not legally bound by the Rome Statute today. So, Not surprisingly, the spokesperson of the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Maria Zaharova, declared the ICC arrest warrants against Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Bilova null and void in Russia. However, her comments missed the point that the arrest warrants created legal obligations for the state's parties to the Rome Statute rather than Russia as a third state. Of course, Russia does not have to arrest the suspects and surrender them to the Hague, even though it could be in its national interests to counter the ICC allegations through the established procedures. Contrary to the acrimonious claims of many Russian critics, including legal experts, the fact that neither Russia nor Ukraine is a state part of the Rome Statute cannot prevent the ICC from investigating and prosecuting Russian nationals 
and Ukrainian nationals for crimes allegedly committed in Ukraine. In 2014 and 2015, Ukraine submitted two declarations under Article 12.3 of the Rome Statute accepting the ICC's jurisdiction over international crimes allegedly committed on its territory since late 2013. The second of these declarations does not have time limits, so it covers events up to today and tomorrow. So that is the basis, the jurisdictional basis of the ongoing ICC investigations. Go ahead, Oviso. Maybe just a quick comment from me. The issue of jurisdiction here, it's not exactly uh, controversial in this case, because as I say, he explained in the beginning, as much as Russia is not a state party to the Rome Statute, Ukraine sort of gave jurisdiction to the ICC by you know, um, depositing a declaration. So that is not necessarily a controversial issue in this case. But what would be controversial, and which is actually going to be controversial, it's been before, and it actually heightens it, is the question of immunities, because Putin, with the arrest warrant on his head, is a head of state. And while these issues are risen before, in the case of the former president of Sudan, that's Omar al-Bashir, it was actually very um, aggressively litigated at the court. Quite a number of states refused to, uh, to effect the arrest warrant, largely because the question of immunity of heads, of heads of state is a customary international law norm. And then here you have a treaty, a treaty provision that actually requires you to sort of supersede that CIA, the customary international law norm. So from the litigation in the court uh, before the, the ICC, as regards El Bashir, the court has pronounced itself with finality on the issue. The appeals chamber said, well, in this case, we do not recognize, the Rome Statute system does not recognize immunity of heads of state. I believe, and I and a few other scholars believe that the, the appeals chamber of the ICC is wrong on this matter. But, uh, you know, we get to a point where even if we believe the ICC has wrongly misinterpreted the question of immunity of heads of state, um, we get to a point where if, you know, international criminal courts or tribunals or mechanisms say the same thing over and over again, there's nothing much we can do about it. We, we may believe, I do, I firmly believe that the court is wrong on this, but because it's pronounced with finality on this particular question, it may arise again in the question, in the, in the case of, of, of Putin, it will, but I do not see, I don't, I don't see um, the court actually saying anything different. The court is most likely to stick with its jurisprudence on the question of immunity. So as much as I believe the court was wrong in that regard, but it's a losing battle and I do accept when I have lost something. And I, I have lost this particular argument, but it is not going to end. In fact, if we uh, look at how the United States responded to the arrest warrant, they welcomed the arrest warrant, but they were pretty cautious about it, largely because of the issue of immunities. And I think I'll, I'll talk about that later on. So that is one of those, those issues that is going to come out quite prominently when, when the ICC makes a move towards you know, arresting Putin. And that um, brings me to my next issue. Um, how practical is this arrest warrant? Um, the last arrest, well, the first and last arrest warrant issued against a head of state, Omar al-Bashir, to date, has not been effective. That goes back to the, uh, the issue of how arrest warrants of the court are implemented or, if, or effected. The court relies primarily on cooperation from states. It doesn't have a police force of its own. It can't just walk into, into a sovereign state and say, hey, you've come to arrest so-and-so. So if states do not implement that arrest warrant, then you know, the court sits there on, on the arrest warrant and nothing happens. So it's quite unlikely that... Putin, unfortunately, it's quite unlikely that Putin is going to be arrested anytime soon. But I mean, I'm up for uh, pleasant surprises if that does happen. And I'm actually quite keen to see what South Africa does in October during the BRICS, uh, BRICS summit. But most likely, no state is going to touch Putin. Unless, of course, it gets deposed and Russia hands him over. But it's quite unlikely that this arrest warrant is going to be implemented. But the fact that it exists is very important, symbolically, at least. 
Thank you, Wiso. And yet thinking about the practicality of these arrest warrants and states implementing them, Al Jazeera reported that Ronald Lamola, the South African Justice Minister, recently said that they will explore, and I quote, various options with regard to how the Rome Statute was domesticated in our country, including the option to look at extending customary diplomatic immunity to visiting heads of state in our country, end of quote. And so it seems that you're, you're certainly not alone when feeling a little uncomfortable about what the ICC pronounced in respect to al-Bashir. I think you're right, Carl, there about the feeling uncomfortable. And that's, I think, a real issue. And it also goes back to Oiso's point that there are the legal aspects about jurisdiction and immunities and whatever else. But that's all within this bigger political context of how these states interact, how they navigate, um, how they manipulate the law for their own purposes as well. So while I agree with Oiso that I welcome these arrest warrants, and I think symbolically they're important, I also am not holding my breath in terms of, you know, seeing Putin actually before the International Criminal Court at any time soon. So I think you really do have to look at the political impacts and global impacts around the world. So not just Europe. Obviously, Europe has spoken quite um, strongly with one voice, but around the world, there have been very different approaches um, to the conflict and to these arrest warrants. And I think South Africa was a really good example previously of a situation across the African continent and different political situations there. We saw that Bashir, as Oiso said, was never arrested. And we'll see what South Africa does now. But I note also that there was a time where Bashir had to flee South Africa because there was actually a case brought before the domestic South African courts by lawyers saying that the state was obliged by law to then arrest Bashir. So you also see different groups having different interests here and pursuing them via different legal means. So the South African state, I don't think, is keen to comply with their Rome state obligations to arrest Putin or Bashir. But civil society groups are mobilizing and litigating domestically to try to enforce that. So um, I think there are many different moving parts here that need to be examined in terms of how the law is actually implemented in practice. And while I think we're not going to see Putin before the ICC anytime soon or ever, there are many examples where after decades have passed by, we have seen people brought to trial for their alleged crimes. I think Milosevic is an obvious example who passed away while on trial in The Hague. Then there's Charles Taylor. It took some 20 years before he was convicted. Hussein Habre, it was some 30 years before he was convicted. And of course, the Khmer Rouge in um, Cambodia, it was some 40 years later. So yes, it's May now. Nothing's happened in these immediate few weeks, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the story. Thank you, Julie. Victoria? I think as well, it's important that we're talking about how different states will react to this arrest warrant. But I think it's also important to consider how Putin and his co-perpetrator, uh, so to say, will react and, is, and are reacting to this arrest warrant as well. And there's a continued kind of demonstration of defiance against the ICC and um, so-called Western actors, I think, by Putin. And I think you know, for example, it was it, it was interesting to see that immediately after the arrest warrants were issued, Putin was in Ukraine, in Crimea, in Mariupol. And I think it's kind of signaling that, you know, he feels that he can still continue to travel, uh, even though in a more restrictive way. So that is interesting, right? So there's real physical reaction and demonstration of defiance. Now, staying with this issue of reactions, one of the many things we wanted to consider on this panel today 
are the reactions coming from Ukraine to these arrest warrants? Victoria and said he, what can you tell us about this from your perspectives? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not Ukrainian, so I wouldn't want to in any way represent Ukraine in a general sense. But I think that there are differing views and I think quite nuanced views as well. I think that there's overall a lot of support for uh, the arrest warrants, a lot of maybe a sense of relief in some respects that these arrest warrants have been issued there's a few kind of developments on the back of it. I think, for example, the, the prosecutor general of Ukraine has signed a cooperation agreement and there will be the establishment of a ICC country office in Ukraine. And then also, for example, from civil society perspectives, I think a lot of civil society organizations have issued statements on the arrest warrants. I saw one from Kharkiv Human Rights Protection Group who uh, stated that they welcome the signal of these arrest warrants, but to note that the crimes falling within those cases started in 2014 as opposed to um, just last year. And also I saw another statement uh, from the 5am coalition which alluded to the point that these crimes could also potentially constitute genocide and noting the fact that that had not been included as a charge at this stage, but that it could be at a later point. So I think in general that arrest warrants are welcomed, but I think there's quite high expectations of what the ICC can do uh, in Ukraine. And I think that it's important to recognise also the limitations of the ICC, what it has jurisdiction over and what it doesn't, and its role. The role of the ICC really is to charge those most responsible. And as we see already, the case is quite limited. There are some reports, I think, that there will be a possible second set of charges in relation to the targeting of civilian infrastructure, but those are just reports at this stage. And I think, you know, we're recognising the difficulties in getting put in before the ICC. Um, so those kind of limitations need to be recognised and potentially made more clear. I think the high expectations of the ICC are being driven by politicians and also the media. And I think some of those kind of myths, I think, need to be dispelled on a, a national level as well. Yeah, I think that overall, the ICC arrest warrants were met with enthusiasm in Ukraine. And I think it is first and foremost symbolic. So this symbolism, uh, in my opinion, is threefold. First, the ICC arrest warrants provided a certain sense of relief to some Ukrainian victims of war crimes, particularly those exact war crimes with which the suspects were charged. Second, the ICC press release containing information about their arrest warrants made virtually all world media, including Russian media, as well as our today's podcast, recognize the problem and talk about it. So this publicity might, I would underscore might, not may, prevent some further crimes against Ukrainians, although it is naive to believe that the Russo-Ukrainian war would, as a result, end immediately. And third, Ukrainian state officials said that the ICC arrest warrants constituted the historic decision, paving the way for historical responsibility. Put differently, Vladimir Putin's place in history ought to be among international criminals. And the same holds true for a less influential politician, Maria Lvova-Bilova. 
Interestingly, the Ukrainian domestic discourse about historical justice went beyond such general statements. In fact, Ukrainian state officials and scholars began to historicize the ongoing atrocities with those committed by Russians against Ukrainians in the past. In particular, references were made to the Great Famine of 1932-1933, also known as the Holodomor, when millions of Ukrainians died because of hunger. Of course, the ICC has no temporal jurisdiction to address the blood-curdling history of maltreatment of Ukrainians by the imperial centers in St. Petersburg and Moscow, but the ICC arrest warrants epitomize an opportunity to break the cycle of Russian atrocities against Ukrainians. At the same time, some criticism was leveled against the ICC in Ukraine. It may be surprising for some Western commentators and lay people. I would outline just two big issues that um, were discussed uh, in Ukraine last April and in, in March as well. The first problem concerns time. So the opening of the investigation itself was long overdue because the Russo-Ukrainian war began in February 2014 and the Ukrainian government lodged two ad hoc declarations accepting the ICC jurisdiction soon thereafter. So admittedly, nine years of waiting time for the first arrest warrants is a lot. And the second criticism in Ukraine concerns the silences of the ICC arrest warrants. That is what they do not say explicitly. Many Ukrainian legal experts, including state officials, found it disappointing that neither the ICC press release about the information uh, about ICC arrest warrants, nor a report of the Independent International Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine, published a couple of days earlier, broached the topic of genocide against Ukrainians. International organizations did not, for some reason, grasp that the so-called denazification of Ukraine is nothing but a deliberate destruction of the Ukrainian nation, thus falling within the ambit of the international definition of genocide. The sensitivity of Ukrainians to the omission of genocide charges, I believe, can be explained by the tragic history of the Holodomor, which I mentioned earlier, and which is considered genocide by Ukrainian lawyers and historians. Yet legal experts in Ukraine believe that the ICC arrest warrants were the first step towards a legal recognition of the ongoing genocide against Ukrainians. Thanks very much, Karl and Sergei and Victoria, for raising those points in relation to the perception in Ukraine of these arrest warrants. Um, and I wanted to pick up on that because I thought, Victoria, you raised a really interesting point about the limitations of the ICC and how that needs to be properly and carefully and thoroughly communicated to Ukrainians. And then, Sergei, I was also thinking about what you were talking about in relation to genocide, but also I think we can add to that crime of aggression, because there's been a lot of debate about whether or not, you know, this is a good start, but it misses genocide. Um, it also doesn't include aggression. And then we get debates around jurisdiction and aggression. But then I, I think to myself, you know, is there a real hierarchy of crimes? And 
labeling Putin as a war criminal with these arrest warrants and perhaps a conviction in the future, you know, is is that enough? Or do we additionally need also genocide? And do we additionally need then also aggression? Or simply can we be pragmatic, as I think the prosecutor is being now, and push through this charge um, and have a narrow case that's perhaps easier to prosecute and easier to get a conviction for, rather than going for something like genocide, which includes you know, these ele- mental elements, which can be much harder to prove. So, so how do we balance kind of this push for pragmatism versus then a feeling that people need to be satisfied by having all of the crimes recognized and by having their victimhood then also recognized for the various crimes. And this comes back to the point, I think, Sarah, you mentioned, which I thought was a really good one, that history should show Putin to be a war criminal. But that made me think of the limitations of international criminal law. And we can look back at studies now done of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which have looked at how that has been perceived now in the former Yugoslavia and how that has or has not shifted narratives or influenced history about that conflict and who were the perpetrators and the victims and how justice was delivered in that context. There's a really sort of mixed success there. Um, And I also think about other perpetrators before the ICC who have been acquitted or whose cases were dropped. I'm thinking about um, Bemba and Bagbo, who, for example, both went back to their home countries and both tried to re-enter politics. Now, they weren't convicted, so that's different. But I think one of the big limitations of international criminal law and the International Criminal Court is that it cannot, and I don't think we should expect it to, be giving us the truth of these situations. And that, I think, is really unsettling for a lot of victims and a lot of people who who are looking for that. I think the points you make, Julia, are really important about kind of whether we should go for genocide and aggression as opposed to other crimes um, and whether there's a hierarchy of crimes. And I think just from my own conversations with various actors in Ukraine, I think there is certainly the view that prosecuting the crime of aggression, for example, is of utmost importance and in some ways a perception that aggression is this kind of overarching umbrella crime from which other crimes, you know, all other crimes perpetrated can flow. The only danger I see with that is that I think from a kind of victim-centric approach, sometimes, um, you know, justice for a particular individual or group of individuals might not mean prosecution, for example, of the crime of genocide or aggression. It might mean prosecution of a war crime against a lower or mid-level perpetrator who's directly affected uh, them and their life, uh, lives. And I think that it's important maybe to kind of uh, reiterate the point that there isn't a hierarchy of crimes. So just adding on to what Julie and Victoria said, I think there's, a, there's, an, there's an issue of, and this is not just specific to Ukraine, there's an issue of um, managing expectations. And I think the most important thing is managing the expectation of survivors and victims. Because um, it, it's, it's understandable that there's been discussion about the nature of the scope of the crimes that Karim Khan has chosen to go after. If you look at the scope of the crimes um, within those arrest warrants, it excludes quite a number of other crimes that uh, survivors and victims are very particular about. And in this case, there's been lots of uh, discussion around why did you charge genocide and why did you go for this? And as Julie correctly points out, proving genocide is actually very difficult. The, the evidentiary threshold is actually very, very high. And, you know, there have been, of course, questions of, about the utility of, of how we define the, the crime of genocide today, but that's a different discussion. Um, and in this case, I would 
And this is a very rare moment for me. I would actually uh, side with Karim Khan's decision to hold back a little bit on the, uh, on, on the question of genocide, because I think it would be mo- much more damaging to charge genocide and then not be able to prove it. It would be much more damaging for us to the reputation of the court itself and to the, uh, the quest for criminal accountability for the crime of aggression and the war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by you know, Russia in Ukraine. So I think uh, the cautious approach of not charging genocide at the moment, maybe he'll do it at some point. But if he were to do it, I would, I would suggest that he only does it if he is very, very certain about the evidence he, he has. Because... Uh, charging genocide and failing to prove it would be very, very damaging. And in this case, if you look at um, the case of Omar al-Bashir, I think about a year or two ago, the prosecutor actually indicated that he might have to review the the charge um, as regards the crime of genocide because the evidentiary threshold is so high and he's not very certain whether whether he'll get the evidence for that. So I think that that, uh, this is a rare moment for me to actually side with the prosecutor that, well, this, this cautious approach actually is important and it, it, it appears to me to be the right move but again that should be followed with managing the expectations of victims because victims and survivors have the legitimate expectation to see uh, to see the perpetrators charged with this and this and this and this and this so it's upon the international criminal court to actually you know its outreach process to actually speak to victims and speak to survivors and manage the expectations by sim- by properly explaining what the jurisdiction of the court is what the approach to, to, to evidence gathering is, what its charging strategy is. Because if we do, you, you look at the past situations that the ICC has been engaged in, there's been a lot of complaints about people in situations countries not understanding what the court is all about. And that is simply because nobody bothers to explain what the process is. So you have expectations are this high, yet you know the, the, the returns or dividends are that low, and then you end up with you know people questioning the utility of the whole process. Oh, we saw, I, I also want to um, join along with the points that you just made then. And I do certainly agree that the prosecutor was very clever to take such a narrow pragmatic approach um, because the court has a terrible track record in prosecuting state officials. Of all the cases to date, um, they've only successfully prosecuted members of non-state armed groups. I'm thinking here about Lubanga, Katanga, Zaganda, Ongwen, Almadi. None of these were state officials. They were all opposed to or fighting with various state groups. In terms of state officials, um, the court has a really terrible record. And I think that's when you look at the fact that people who were state officials also had state power backing them. And that made it much more complicated and much more difficult to prosecute, to investigate, to get evidence, and then to have um, a conviction secured. Uh, If you look at the cases from Kenya, I'm thinking about the Kenyatta and the Ruto cases, where the charges were withdrawn due to insufficient evidence. Um, we've also got the cases from Cote d'Ivoire uh, in relation to Bagbo, who was actually acquitted along with Blegoudé, um in 2019. And that um, Bagbo was a former leader of Cote d'Ivoire. Kenyatta was at the time the leader of Kenya. Um, and these are devastating cases. And I really agree with Owiso that it's very bad for the court's reputation um, to be mounting these really ambitious cases only to have the charges withdrawn or acquittals entered for want of of evidence here. So I think the prosecutor is good to be more um, cautious about this and move forward pragmatically. But at the same time, you then see a disrupt between what the prosecutor is pursuing and what victims want. Because ideally, victims of a whole range of different crimes would want all of those crimes charged, investigated, prosecuted, and then repaired. 
because the International Criminal Court also has this opportunity to provide reparations to victims. But it's not to all victims of the situation. It's only to victims of the harm caused by the crimes of the person convicted, which in this case would only relate to those children, the immediate victims, and perhaps then their family members uh, as, as indirect victims. And so here you see a real clash, I think, between what victims are looking for as a wider category and what the prosecutor is looking for in terms of securing conviction. And this, I think, goes back to what Victoria said about the limitations of the ICC. The ICC prosecutor, Karim Han, explicitly stressed that the issuance of arrest warrants was driven by the collected evidence. That implies that he does not have, for the time being, enough evidence to charge Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Bilova with the genocidal act of a forcible transfer of children from one protected group to another group. Yet a new charge may be added in a later warrant, as already happened in the al-Bashir case, for example. I think that some Ukrainian legal experts understood this hidden message, latent message of Karim Khan, that they need to work harder, tooth and nail, to collect and systematize evidence so that the ICC prosecutor could charge these two suspects or maybe other individuals with genocide later. In other words, their ongoing ICC investigations are also a professionalism test for Ukrainian investigators, prosecutors, and other legal experts. So whether they would be able to overcome these legal challenges. And secondly, I would like to address Julie's comment about idealism in the context of the ICC arrest warrants and comparisons with the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. As we know, very many victims of atrocities in the Balkans were dissatisfied with the verdicts of that tribunal. And perhaps it is impossible to satisfy all their aspirations and demands from all parties to the armed conflict, from all stakeholders, particularly victims. I believe that after the ICC press release containing information about the arrest warrants against Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Bilova, the Ukrainian society is at this idealistic stage, the most idealistic stage, which would perhaps change in the future. Yet, I believe that the international investigators should aim as high as possible if they possess the relevant evidence and charge everyone whom they can. And then we'll see who will end up in the dock. But the, uh, without this idealism, I believe international criminal justice uh, has no future. As a matter of fact, this idealism was prevalent in the negotiations leading to the establishment of the Rome Statute back in the 1990s. I think the point that Sergei makes about the kind of collection of evidence towards the, the crime of genocide is quite interesting. And I think 
from my perspective, working with civil society organizations and investigators and prosecutors in Ukraine, I think a lot of work is being done already in terms of the documentation and the gathering of evidence, which could be used as proof uh, of the crime of genocide. I think the question then is to what extent is the ICC going to be cooperating with those civil society organizations in Ukraine and investigators and prosecutors in Ukraine, which are already gathering this evidence? I think that's a big question, and I think it remains to be seen how that cooperation will, will happen in practice. Said he, I know you also wanted to briefly touch upon reactions and perspectives from Russia in respect to the arrest warrants. What can you tell us about this? Following the publication of the ICC press release containing information about arrest warrants against Putin and Lvova Bilova, Russian media began to foam at the mouth with the anti-ICC hysteria. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev, for example, even threatened the ICC with hypersonic missile strikes. In turn, some Russian legal experts obligingly theorized that the ICC premises lost their status as a civilian object and turned into a legitimate military target. More generally, uh, you can observe how Russian professors of international law and legal practitioners based in Russia try to come up with all sorts of legal arguments supporting their position, the official position of the Kremlin. Less hawkish Russian statesmen suggested indicting or imposing sanctions on ICC judges and staff. Such legal retaliation materialized quite quickly. In late March, um, the com uh, investigative committee of Russia initiated criminal proceedings under the Russian criminal code against the ICC prosecutor, Karim Khan, as well as three judges of pretrial chamber two, um, Judge Khan, Judge Ayatala, and Judge Ugalde Bedinas, who signed the ICC arrest warrants. Moreover, in late April this year, the Russian parliament criminalized any kind of assistance in the execution of ICC decisions against Russian state officials, Russian military personnel, or members of Russian private military companies. And finally, um, Russian legal experts criticizing the ICC for being a politicized institution did not even attempt to deny the factual circumstances on which the ICC arrest warrants were based. Instead, the Kremlin and Russian commentators misused the rhetoric of human rights, notably children's rights, as a smokescreen for Russia's violations of international law. I'm not aware of any dissident voices coming from Russia. In fact, the only Russian legal experts praising the ICC arrest warrants are currently in exile. But even members of this small cohort of people, uh, I mean, the Russian legal experts in exile, often prefer to keep silence about the Russo-Ukrainian war, even though they are physically abroad and hence cannot be reached by the repressive law enforcement bodies of Russia. Okay, well, um, I'm honestly not surprised. I mean, listening to, 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 to Seiki on reactions from Russia, I'm honestly not surprised at all by the reaction of Russian state actors to the Putin and Vova Belova arrest warrants. 
I'm yet to see any state that you know is in the crosshairs of the ICC respond enthusiastically and with open arms to the ICC. I mean, from Kenya to the United States of America to Israel, the response has been you know very similar. So really, I'm not particularly bothered by it. I don't believe that it should be a deterrent to the ICC. In any case, I would encourage Karim Khan, uh, with whom we um, disagree on quite a lot, but I would dis- I would encourage him to press ahead because. Uh, at the end of the day, victims and survivors of Putin's war do need this. I was thinking while listening to Sergei about the Russian response that it, it sounded also like the US government's response under Bolton and Trump in, in terms of sanctions and, and all the rest of it. So I'm sure that's not an analogy the US government would like. But I agree with Oiso that, uh, yeah, I don't think it's surprising. Um, in, in a way, um, it sort of confirms uh the, the arrest warrants. But one thing I think is surprising is that they also haven't denied the actions. So this where it comes back to Maria Lvova Belova, who, who hasn't denied, you know, removing the children. It's been well documented. They have interviews with the children, pictures. So in that sense, they're, they're contesting the narrative, not the fact. And with that reflection, we've come to the end of part one of this episode. Join us in part two to hear the rest of this conversation.